The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. At last there came a Yankee skipper Away, you rolling river He winked his eye and he tipped his flipper Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick. Uh, this is part four of what will be a six-part series, and it will focus on chapters 58 to, to 81. But I'm not going to say actually too much about uh, you know these chapters these, this is kind of the doldrums of, of the novel where we're really into the nuts and bolts and the the details about about um, whaling I, I will highlight some of the things that come up in this part of the novel but by and large it's 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 part this part of the novel that maybe turns a lot of people off I think and my both of my parents hated Moby Dick whenever I mentioned my fondness for this book they they're horrified that I you know say it and every time they i don't know if they're trying to trigger me but they you know they they just can't stand this novel largely because of these chapters where we get a lot of the details about about whaling and, and we actually see the crew at work chopping up these whales processing their flesh into into whale oil and and a lot of those details i kind of like it but i'm not sure i have too much to say about this but something i do want to talk about is to say a little bit more about Captain Ahab and, and how he can be interpreted by, or how he has been interpreted, at least by one writer, one significant uh, American socialist from, from the middle of the 20th century. You know, really at a time, I think the, the Melville revival was what, the mid 20th century? For almost 100 years, no one really read Melville, and then he started coming back. And now, of course, he's one of the most commonly read American authors from the 19th century. And you know, when the Library of America came out, you know, their number one volume was was Herman Melville. And I think he was, I think he was also the first author that they finished that they, they they put out all three volumes of Melville before they really finished up with any other author. Although I'm not sure, at least for the multi the authors who have multiple works in the Library of America, so they really focus they, they put Melville front and center in their thinking when they when they designed this this series. So he's certainly well known now but he was sort of forgotten for for a long time and but here this guy i'm thinking about the guy who wrote about melville in the middle of the 20th century was a man named clr james clr james is, is most famous for his book about haiti called black jacobins which is one of the first works to take seriously the the haitian revolution as 
and a legitimate slave revolt led by black people yeah, in the New World, not just as an extension of the French Revolution. So it's a very significant work in, in black history, especially uh, and even a significant work in Atlantic history. Because now people, historians, take for granted the interconnections of the revolutions of the Atlantic world. How the French and the Haitian Revolution affected each other. How the Haitian Revolution shaped the American history. I think, you know, I mean like the United States' history. So these interconnections across the Atlantic are, of course, well known now by historians. But C.L.R. James was one of the first to, to really take seriously the experiences of, of Haitian people in the age of revolution. And, and that great book is called Black Jacobins. But he wrote other things as well. And, and so in 1953, he wrote this book called Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways, the story of Herman Melville and the world we live in. This was mostly written while he was in jail, um, being deported. And this was a time when immigration restrictions were, were high in America, when you know, America basically had open borders until the 20s. And then from the 1920s until the 60s, it had much more restricted immigration, particularly towards immigrants from non-white areas. The way they did this is they set quotas, and the quotas were based on the current population of people from those different countries, right? Now, of course, African-Americans were, you know, they weren't immigrants in this sense, so they weren't counted, so they, they couldn't say, you know, 10% of immigrants can be from Africa. Right, they actually designated from certain countries how many were from, and there's a quota system, and it really privileged England and Germany because that's where the recorded, documented immigration had come from pre previously. And there were other ways of restricting immigration as well, such as literacy tests and things like that. And C.L.R. James was kind of thrown into this, and it didn't help that he was he was a leftist in the in the Cold War environment. So these immigration restrictions were a justification to basically toss out a, a, a dirty commie. So he writes this book, really, in, in it he explores Melville's works through the lens of mid-20th century totalitarianism, right? And the concept of totalitarianism is something that comes about after the war, really with the Cold War, I think, right? Of course, during the war you had communism and Stalinism on one side and, and fascism on the other, and they were at war with one another, right? So it was hard to see these as, as one thing or of different shades of the same thing. Not that people couldn't imagine, you know, two brothers at war, but they were just seen as pretty different, and they are very different. Their, their systems were entirely different. Everything from gender politics to the way the economy was organized to the way leadership was run to the nature of the party, ethnic policy. I mean, we could go on all day about how the Soviet Union is nothing like Nazi Germany. But in the context of the Cold War, it became convenient to kind of lump these together into one ideology and to say, you know, that it's, you know, it's, it's what we're not, right? It's, 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 it's anti-democratic, you know, they're together in that they're not democratic. And that's the most, the most important characteristic. Technically, the term totalitarianism means the party has total control over society, right? Top down, not just an autark, auto, autocracy where one person rules, not just, you know, autocratic regimes where power flows from one central location instead of being democratic. Totalitarianism means every aspect of your life is engulfed in it. That's pretty much not true either for the Soviet or the Nazi case. The term is, is rather overblown. You know, it gives too much credit to, say, power. But it's in that context of the emerging Cold War and this concept that there's this totalitarianism out there that we're opposing that James wrote his work. 
And he starts kind of where I started as well in the previous episodes, and that is with this contrast between Ahab and Starbuck, which is essentially a conflict in the American spirit for James. Starbuck represents sober capitalism, pragmatism, and prudence. Ahab on this great mission, megalomaniacal mission, but he's got a great mission to kill the whale, to kill the white whale. He rejects the economic principles of capital for his vision of, of what the goal they should be. He makes do with capitalism to, you know, to accomplish his goals. He, of course, has to hire a crew, has to have that crew make money, he has to keep them from mutinying. But basically, he's rejecting the pragmatic view of capital. So this leads James to suggest that in his time, Ahab would have been investigative for the FBI for subversive activities. He sees totality, not the petty concerns of daily life. And here's James quoting uh, a quote from James. Ahab was part of a shrinking or a striking, sorry. Ahab was part of a striking growth of material progress, of trade and of money. By his energy, his skill, his devotion to his work, he has become captain of his own vessel like so many other gifted and energetic young men. In fact, he's master of his difficult craft. But having become captain, Ahab finds himself in a continual revolt against his work, his personal life, and the opinions of the people around him. So this is Ahab's danger, according to James. And James calls him the, quote, most destructive social type that's ever appeared in Western civilization. Now, to quote Jones at length here, sorry to do that, it's just such a fascinating book. He wrote, for generations, people believed that men opposed to rights of ownership, production of the market, domination of money, etc., were socialists, communists, radicals of some sort, united by the fact that they all thought in terms of the reorganization of society by the workers. The great majority of the oppressed, the exploited, the disinherited. Nobody, not a single soul, thought that in the managers, the superintendents, the executives, the administrators would arise such loathing and bitterness against the society of free enterprise, the market and democracy, that they would try to reorganize it to suit themselves, and if need be, destroy civilization in the process. End quote. So Ahab here is a manager. He's, a, he's someone who's risen up in institutions. Of, of, of American life, right? And Melville makes, makes pains to talk about whaling. The whaling ship is a central institution of American life at the time. And so Ahab rises up in that, but he, in doing that, he's also rejecting all that. So just because you rise up in a market system doesn't mean you, you have, you're sharing the values of the market or democracy or something. You might actually be in open revolt against that. And that's a very dangerous situ- position to be in, to be in power and to have perverted and distorted values. So, um, yeah, so as James explained, Ahab is in revolt against the very Promethean spirit that his profession embodies. Quote, fire, power, mechanical creativeness, he does not reject. He knows that they have made him what he is. He rejoices in that. But as long as it means an inhuman existence, such as he has lived, he will defy it. End quote. And that inhuman existence is, of course, the one in which is just his vengeance is, is is delayed. What makes it so insidious is that Ahab's individualism and alienation from the crew as well. He's an alienated tyrant and very, very dangerous, of course, leading the entire crew to its, to its death. The loss of his leg pushed Ahab to a full rejection of the world and civilization. Bear in mind, Ahab always had a fragile relationship with civilization to begin with. He spent most of his life at the sea. He barely knows his wife. Now, now there is a interest, there's a book out there somewhere called Ahab's Wife, which is actually a historical book about the wives of of whaling whalers and, and the family life of people 
you know, who are married to these seamen. But, you know, Ahab does have a wife. She's only mentioned, I think, once. Just in, sort of in passing. But this is the same kind of aloofness is reflected in his relationship with his workers. Uh, back to James, quoting James, the crew are not human beings, but things, as he calls them, manufactured men. For him, their permanent condition is sordidness. For a moment, he has lifted them out of themselves by his crusade for achievement of his purpose. And even then, he bided them with a dublin and a grog and ritual. Unquote. Yeah, and so he pulls them, he brings them into this, he gives them their life meaning. That's what he thinks he's doing. And that speech he gives at the, at, on the deck of the ship, declaring what their mission really is, it's all framed in that I'm giving you meaning, right? You have something for your life now. Um, so there's a lot in this book, uh, Herman Melville in the World We Live In, not just about Moby Dick, but on, about other aspects of, of Melville's writing, although I think Moby Dick is the heart of it. So James feels that Ahab is actually the perfect representative of a Hitler or a Stalin, indifferent to the potential and abilities of the people he uses and consumed by a hatred for the world and a desire to destroy it. Yet he's seen, and here's what's cool about James, is he doesn't see this as something foreign to America. He sees this as deeply rooted in American traditions and in American the economy. That tension between the Starbuck and the Ahab is always there in American capitalism, right? That people who may rise up within the system of capitalism may not serve it, and they may command it for their own purposes, right? It, it, the problem is this authoritarianism in capitalism, I suppose, that gives so much power to the people on the top, right? You assume that your boss cares about the, the profit of the ship, right? Or the profit of the company, right? Or you, you assume they, they share your interests, or they, you know, they don't even talk this way, we're in this together, right? But their motivations might actually be quite different. And, and that's the warning uh, that James thinks Ahab represents. That, and not, not that he's some foreign tyrant. He's not a, like a Russian czar reborn in the Soviet era, like Stalin maybe was. It's actually coming out of American, the American spirit. So if we accept James's argument, we should approach Ahab with caution, the same way we might approach Lucifer in Paradise Lost, right? Because if you read Paradise Lost, it's so tempting. And there are famous writers, I think William Blake was one of them, who got tempted by this portrayal of Lucifer to actually make, almost make him the good guy of Paradise Lost. All right, look, and he's that, he's struggling against authority. He's, he's the individualist. He's, he's the good, brave person, you know, fighting for freedom from tyranny, right? I'd rather be, I'd rather be like free in hell than a slave in heaven. I forget the exact word, wording of it, right? He's a very attractive character, and I, I think Milton did that on purpose, of course, but but we're not supposed to get caught into it, right? He's still this odious destroyer of of, of all that's good, right? He's still ruling over hell, he, and he's still a tyrant, right? He he may want not, he may not want to serve God, but he certainly is fine commanding a hierarchy in hell. So the suggestion here is that we should fear totality because it risks the very Promethean spirit that promises. Not capitalism. I mean, there's that. I mean, Starbucks is a capitalist. Starbucks is for profit at the end of the day. And that's where his tension with AF comes from. But our Promethean spirit should be something that promotes equality, solidarity, freedom, that kind of stuff. And not, you know, and that can't be a totality, it seems. It, it can't, really. I mean, freedom can't. 
equality requires a bit of flexibility and you can't embrace absolutes or you're not going to get anywhere right like you know every time i talk with right-wing economists for some reason i always end up with one in my in my social circle wherever i work or whatever and you talk to them and this idea is like 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 currency is like this magical thing with all these powers and it can't be tampered with and you know like but yes, they can, right? We create a currency and we can create its use and we can distribute it in different ways. The marketplace is not a behemoth. It's not a totality that controls us. So if our values are these Promethean values of equality and solidarity and freedom, like the, the French revolutionary ideals, then we can't really... I mean, we need, we need to avoid that singularity of power, right? That, that I think... James believes is inherent in, in capitalism. So anyways, that's a bit of what what James wrote about Melville. It's a really fascinating book though. If you, if you have a, if you can get a copy of it, I urge you to to read it. Um, it's not his most well-known book, but it's a book that really you know, he didn't write it with uh, like Moby Dick in front of him, I don't think. I think he wrote it basically when it was in holding waiting waiting trial for deportation or whatever so he had to kind of go off memory so it's kind of loose and and flexible and, and based on kind of broad his broad feelings about this about the story but it's still very powerful and i, I think it's it's worth looking into and maybe i'll say more about it later on i, I just don't have a copy with me here in in china so I had to work off my old notes that i had for it okay so that's that's a little bit of my thoughts on well, not really my thoughts, but that, that's what C.L.R. James thought about, about Ahab. So this section that, that I want to talk about, I'm not going to say much, really. I'm just going to say a few words and then and probably put an end to this. And then as we get to the climax, we can kind of get back to a more serious business. Because a lot of this does have to do with process. And it's just about hunting whales. What, what happens is Stubbs kills a spermaceti whale, a sperm whale. And then later on, they kill a right whale. And then they're both on the ship at the same time, kind of breaking down these whales. And there's like these two heads on the ship. Because as they're breaking it up, it kind of there's these, um, like the bodies of the whales are there on the ship because they, they broke them up on the ship itself. And you end up with these like kind of two mast heads almost of these, of a right whale and a, and a spermaceti whale. And you got this really powerful image if when you when you read it of these two on two sides of the ship as the crews were processing these into whale oil and that that's basically what happens and then they meet some more ships i think the jeroboam's and the virgin these are the two ships they run into and those encounters are very much like the previous encounter in which the crews ask about you know they just catch up on news and they, they share news about Moby Dick. Ahab is interested in, in Moby Dick. And we're constantly reminded of his megalomaniacal ambition, his single-minded pursuit of, of the white whale. So that's every encounter with other ships is always about finding the white whale. But some of the interesting things that happens in these, in these pages, one is the, the chapter 59, which is called the squid, in which they, they see a, a giant squid. And this is... There's all kinds of superstitions surrounding the squid. For Queequeg, it's good luck. For Starbuck, it's, it's bad luck. So there's a kind of a cultural divide over what the meaning of, of this stuff is. Um, but, you know, the, this, the, the massive squid, of course, we, we think of 
20,000 leagues under the sea and that kind of thing. Um, apparently these huge squids do exist. I don't know if they can kill spermaceti whales, but it's... Quote, quote, whatever superstitions the sperm whalemen in general have connected with the sight of this object, certain it was than the glimpse of it being so very unusual that circumstances had gone so far as to invest it with portentousness. So rarely is it beheld that the one and all of them declare it to be the largest animated thing in the ocean. Very few of them have any but the most vague ideas concerning its true nature and form. Notwithstanding, they believe it to furnish to the sperm whale its only food. End quote. How little you, you see they actually know about the things they're hunting. It's kind of fascinating, too. Like there's, they never see a sperm whale eat, so there's all kinds of mythology built up about what they, what they even eat, and that's why they, 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 they're imagined to be eating these giant squids. So then they find a whale, and eventually Stubbs is the one who kills it, and so he gets a special supper where he actually gets to eat some of the whale meat, because of course the ship's mostly interested in the, in the whale, in the blubber, right? Because they break that down into into the oil, and, and there's a whole process for that. Um, but, you know, part of the ritual then is the one who kills the whale gets to eat some of the, the whale meat. Now, is this barbarism? Melville actually preempts any such discussion about the perhaps barbarism of, of eating a whale or should we eat the whale. In chapter 65, the whale is a dish. He, he first starts with the kind of the historical narrative of how different cultures do hunt whales and eat whales and the origin of these different um, rituals. Um, and then we got this wonderful passage where he he connects. He says there's a bit of hypocrisy in to say you shouldn't be eating these whale meat. Quote, go to a meat market on a Sunday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up in the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not the sight take a tooth out of a cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in a cellar against the coming famine. It will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment, than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who nailest geese onto the ground and fastest on their bloated livers in their pâté du foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by his own light, does he? And that is, is adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife handle there, my civilized and enlightened gourmand dining off that roast beef. What is that handle made of? But what of the bones of the brother of the very ox you're eating? And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring your fat goose? With the feather of the same fowl. And what with the quill did the Secretary of Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formally indict his circulars? It is only within the last month or two that society has passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. I mean, just wow. I mean, it's, I don't know Melville's own dedication to vegetarianism or animal rights. But he's certainly able to expose the hypocrisy of saying you shouldn't eat whales and then light your your violent you know in your violent act with the you know whale oil. That's like you know how's that any worse than like he says cutting up a roast beef with a with a bone a knife made of uh, or a knife with a handle made of bone um, cow bone. You know, and, and I, I mean, I, I do think that there's something kind of grotesque about the way we, we treat animals. Um, yeah, I, I certainly think banning whaling and, and hunting whales for food is probably a good idea. But there's, you know, billions of animals every year, hundreds of billions, I think, animals every year killed 
for human consumption. And, and that's just what it is, right? That's, that's part of the world we live in. But, you know, just because we think whales are, are special doesn't mean the suffering is not continuing on among other of our brothers and sisters on this planet. So then they begin to strip down the whale and we get all the descriptions of the process by which the whales are, are broken down into whale oil. The next major event, though, is that they run into the Jeroboam. And while when they meet the Jeroboam, of course, Ahab is very interested in, in the white whale. Um, even, you know, Jeroboam says, we actually have disease on this ship and people have died. And Ahab doesn't care. He wants, he's willing to risk it. Risk the help of his crew for his quest. There's an interesting side story here too, where we learn that whaling vessels will carry letters around. So when ships would leave Nantucket, they'd take with them letters on the off chance that they might run into a ship that has the recipient on board. And actually, there was a letter for a, a sailor on the Jeroboam from his wife, but the guy died. And then there's a whole thing where they're lowering the body into the sea, and Ahab gives a letter to him unread, un, unopened, and un, un, unread. Kind of sad, but. You know, that was part of the life of, sail of, of being a whaler, right? When you went off for three, four years, there's no guarantee you're coming back to your, to your wife and family. After the scene with Jeroboam, they, they kill a right whale. And then we get the, the scene where now they're breaking down the two whales. They have the, the spermaceti whale and the right whale. And they, they're kind of like two different mastheads uh, to the ship. And it's a really interesting scene. I think it's chapter, chapter 74, 75 where we see the two... Uh, corpses of the whales being broken down. And we also get a lot of description of like the physical features of the whale, its skin, what it's like, its texture, and all that details there for you if, if you want to read it. Um, and then the last chapter, chapter 81, is called The Pequod Meets the Virgin. So it's yet another encounter between two whaling ships. Now this one really isn't about so much this chase for the white whale. It, it's really about a, a ship. It's called the Virgin, the, the Jungfrau. And it's a German ship that's really on hard times. And they, you know, they have no oil. That's the first sign that they're in trouble, right? Because they, they don't have any oil to light their own lamps and stuff. And it's just because they, they've had a drought. They haven't really been able to find any whales to, to, to profit from, much less to even light their own ship. So they're actually begging the Pequod for some oil to essentially borrow or to have. Ahab does, of course, ask about the white whale, but the Jungfrau, the virgin, has no, no way can help them. Um, then they see a, a whale, and the more experienced crew of the Pequod are able to actually hunt, hunt the whale, and the German ship is not able to, is not able to get it. Now this whale is extremely old. It's actually been in battles before because there's actually a, a, a stone harpoon into it, which is kind of bizarre and wild. Like, was it hunted by Indians or, you know, I don't know. There's a bit, a little bit of a, you can kind of imagine maybe it, it survived since the Paleolithic, right? Hunted by cavemen or something. But, you know, it, it wasn't injured by the modern whaling crews. Because Ishmael already talked about how, you know, sometimes... These, harp, you know, these wounds will will be recognizable, right? You know, remember, I, I ran into that whale before. I, I, I actually caused that wound on its flesh. But here there's actually this ancient, like, like injured, this wound from a, from a stone harpoon. 
another interesting thing here is like the usually these whales like floated after they were killed but this one starts to sink and i don't know if it's because if it's old or whatever but it starts to actually start to bring down the ships until they bring it on on board um and then the virgin just goes off hunting actually a a whale that'll be too fast for them to catch and they think it's a sperm whale but it's not and and so this is just about how there are these ships out there that aren't really experienced and really don't know what they're doing and for all his faults ahab's fault as a captain he does know what he's doing he does have experience he's earned his position as captain but um it doesn't mean that every ship out there in the seas you know has a crew that knew what it was doing and that's the importance of the jungfrau so that's it. I don't know. It's, it's a section of the novel that, that may be hard to get through. It's a lot of details. I think some of the imagery here is great, though. Like, there's a moment where he's talking about, like, the skin of the whale and comparing it to hieroglyphics, like writing. Uh, I think there's a chapter called, that's in the chapter called The Prairie, where he talks about the skin, you know, and contrasting it with the prairie lands of America. And the, the imagery of the, the two heads of the whales on the ship, it, it's great. And I mean, there's a lot in the... the Ahab's relentlessness, even to the you know risking disease coming onto a ship. This is this is all great stuff. Um, it's just um, part of the the texture of the novel that, that that I enjoy. But I'm not really sure what to say about a lot of it without getting you know I don't really want to look at this too too symbolically, right? I, I kind of read these stuff a little bit maybe too thematically and too historically. My interest in these texts are really often much more historical than they are. Literary, I suppose. But anyways, I guess that's all I want to say about this this part of, of the novel. In, in the next episode, I will get part five. I'll be looking at chapters 82 to... What is it? To 104. So another 20 pages or so. This will bring us right up to the brinks of the climax, um, to the actual chasing of the white whale. So anyways, if you have any of your own thoughts about the character of Ahab, if you've read C.L.R. James's account of, of Melville, you know, let me know your thoughts about that. It's, you know, there's a lot to say about that book. So what do you think of it? And what would you say about it to add to what I've, I've said? Or what do you think of this, this part of the, the novel, what I'm saying is kind of the doldrums of, of the narrative, where we seem stuck in kind of this day-to-day -day life of, of whalers? So anyways, just leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time with part part five, yeah, part five of my review of, of Moby Dick.